Hello, everybody. Um, before we start this episode properly, I just want to say something here about the earthquake in Mexico. So not a sponsorship message, not not yet anyway, that's going to come later. But I just wanted to say something about the earthquake in Mexico, which happened on the 19th of September. That's yesterday as I record this. I imagine you've, you've heard a bit about this already. Some of you might not be fully aware of the story, but there was an earthquake in Mexico. Uh, the second of two uh, earthquakes that have happened recently. This most recent one, this story happens with a particularly nasty coincidence. And I think that that might have added a particularly shocking element to what is already a a terrible disaster. Uh, So uh, I'm just reading this paragraph from uh, The Week UK, which is an online newspaper, and it goes like this. Each year on the 19th of September, cities across Mexico stage emergency disaster simulations on the anniversary of an 8.0 earthquake that shook the country in 1985, leaving 10,000 people dead, 30,000 people injured and thousands more homeless. Yesterday, that annual drill that happens, well, it's annual, happens every year, that annual drill yesterday began at 11am. And then, just two hours later, the real thing struck, killing at least 149 people, In fact, we think that number has gone up to 200. It's probably more by now. So what a horrible coincidence that uh, in Mexico every year on the 19th of September, they have a simulation, a drill, just to kind of prepare for uh, an earthquake if it happens. 11 o'clock yesterday, the drill happened. Two hours later, the real thing occurred. And it was a really big one. Um, I'm now just going to read a report from the week just to kind of give you the details. So you can find this on the week.co.uk. The title is At Least 200 Dead in Mexico Earthquake. And it goes like this. Um, a 7.1 magnitude earthquake has struck central Mexico, killing at least 200 people and leaving many more trapped in buildings in the capital, Mexico City. The epicentre of the quake was near Atencingo in Puebla State, about 120 kilometres, that's 75 miles, from Mexico City, with a depth of 51 kilometres, according to the US Geological Survey. Rescue workers and residents are searching through the rubble for survivors amid fears of aftershocks and possible gas leaks. Official figures say that 216 people have died, although some reports, including ABC, are claiming that the death toll stands at as many as 248. Hours before the earthquake hit, many people took part in drills and commemorative events on the anniversary of that uh, of the devastating earthquake that killed thousands in Mexico City in 1985, CNN reports. Uh, the BBC said, Earthquake alarms did sound, correspondents say, but some residents apparently thought that they were part of the day of drills. The quake uh, came less than two weeks after at least 90 people were killed by an 8.1 magnitude tremor in the country's southern region. The most recent earthquake was too far from the larger quake 11 days ago to be considered an aftershock and appears to be a separate and unrelated event, US Geological Survey seismologist Paul Earle told uh, ABC. Uh, Okay, so those are the details of that earthquake. this is something from Mashable.com. 
Uh, they, they wrote, uh, with power and phone lines down, people are having trouble getting in touch with loved ones. And to make matters more stressful, the country has al- uh, was already recovering from an earthquake that hit less than two weeks ago. So um, on, on Luke's English podcast, I've got an international audience. And I think that even though we are from different countries, we still care about each other, right? Um, and when something happens like this, and this kind of thing does happen quite a lot, actually, around the world, when this kind of thing happens, it's easy to feel, I guess, a bit hopeless, like there's nothing that you can do to help because you're so far away, um, right? That's what it feels like often. But I think there actually are some things that we can do. Um, here, are, here are some things that we can do, right? Even Even when we are miles away. So first of all, I mean, first of all, there's the idea that we can simply raise awareness through social media. So just sharing stories about the event on social media can help a bit because at least it means that more people actually know that it's happened. That's a bit controversial because people do say there's not much point in just sort of, you know, writing a Facebook post or a tweet saying, you know, we're thinking about people in the affected area. That's controversial. But anyway... But maybe it can sort of raise some awareness if if people share the story. Um, then also, what other what people can do is to write messages of support to the people affected, especially if you are actually in in touch or if you've got you know a, a way of contacting those people. Now, this might seem again, this might seem useless compared to direct action. It's not going to provide food, shelter, and water, but it might help. Um, because uh, showing solidarity or just letting people know that you're thinking about them can help to ease some of the emotional trauma that a lot of people will be experiencing at this moment. Obviously, uh, some emotional support is, you know, it's no replacement for basic services or safety and things like that. But anyway, it can the, the, the effects of this kind of thing are quite widespread. It's not just the people uh, directly affected. Uh, although that must be, you know, obviously they're the most important people. Um, obviously, this this has after effects, you know, an emotional um, uh, sort of effect as well on, on many people. So at least saying that we're thinking about them can help a bit, right? And then thirdly, um, making donations to organisations that are working in the affected area. That's a third thing you can do. And this is perhaps a more direct way that you can help if you're not in the area by providing money for resources. Now, if you believe in the system of organised charity or the work of non-profit organisations, then I urge you um, at least to consider donating uh, some money to help the people who've been affected by this problem and indeed other problems that happen. Um, So donate what you can. Organisations like UNICEF in Mexico, uh, that's um, D-O-N-A-U. NICEF.org.mx or just simply Google UNICEF Mexico. Organizations like that are looking for monetary donations. There's also a big need for clothes, water, and food, and giving to places like Red Cross Mexico. Just Google Red Cross Mexico or visit CR, uh, visit uh, cruzrojamexicana.org.mx, C R U Z R O J A M E X. I-C-A-N-A dot org dot M-X. So that's uh, Red Cross Mexico or Oxfam Mexico. That's O-X-F-A-M-M-E-X-I-C-O dot org. And also Save the Children Mexico. I think you can just Google that one. Um, 
so giving to to those organizations is also a way to get resources flowing now uh this also applies to people suffering from uh the devastating effects of the various hurricanes that have hit recently like hurricane irma which was the most powerful hurricane ever recorded in the atlantic hurricane irma tore across a string of caribbean islands recently and then travelled up through florida and has left behind nothing less than a trail of devastation leaving thousands of children and families homeless uh, not just hurricane irma there've been a number of hurricanes recently uh, you can help them too uh, by donating to international organizations like the one i well, the ones i've mentioned unicef red cross oxfam save the children for example i'm also reminded at this point of the people in southeast bangladesh who were hit by the effects of severe flooding this july and i'm sure that there are many people in that area that also uh, could benefit from our support now at this moment we're thinking of the many people around the world who are affected by disasters like these uh, Right now, our thoughts are with the people in Mexico. And and the fact that with climate change, these sorts of things are likely to become more frequent. I don't know about earthquakes, but uh, certainly there are arguments that suggest that things like hurricanes or just basically extreme weather might be on the increase. There's a lot of um, data which seems to suggest that that is the case. I don't want to get political here and stuff, but I just want to remind you that there are organisations who are working to give care and aid to the people who happen to be affected through no fault of their own, just because they happen to be living in these areas. So UNICEF, the Red Cross, Oxfam, Save the Children, Doctors Without Borders, they can provide direct relief to people who otherwise are helpless at times like this. So please consider giving your support, if you can, with a donation to one of those organisations, or just at least by generally spreading the word even a little bit. If you're in Mexico... Uh, certainly if you're in the in the region that's directly affected by this earthquake or the, the, the other recent earthquake, or if you're affected by any similar situation in other parts of the world and you're in trouble, even if it's just emotional in nature, then I hope I can speak for my audience. I hope I speak for everyone when I say that if it helps you at all, that you should know that we are thinking of you um, and that some of us are making some contributions from a distance to try and help the recovery process. Okay, so that's just what I wanted to say about that. Um, there you go. Uh, and this is just the beginning of the episode. It now feels pretty weird in the light of what I've just said to play you an episode of my podcast now with a sponsorship announcement at the start and then a description of the lovely holiday that I had this August. It feels a bit weird now to make that transition, but here goes anyway. I think that perhaps it's appropriate at this point to just uh, think of the phrase, keep calm and carry on, right? Perhaps that's a good way to do it. So let's keep calm and continue then in that spirit with this episode of this podcast for learners of English. Uh, I recorded this one a few days ago um, before um, before I decided to record this message. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to it and that um, you consider this as a moment to be connected with the rest of the world in some way. Okay then, let's start the episode properly. There'll be a sponsorship mention and then the jingle and then we'll start uh, as we usually do. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's a song at the end which you might like. So anyway, that's nice, isn't it? Okay, that's the end of this message. 
um, and let's have a little bleepy noise and then we'll get started properly. Okay, right, here's the bleepy noise starting right now. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Spoken and at the moment they are offering a new service which is uh, voice calls, so lessons uh, over the telephone essentially. Uh, Spoken voice calls and uh, with Spoken calls you can have 25-minute voice calls with trained native English-speaking instructors using WhatsApp, Line, WeChat and other platforms. And you can focus on the most important topics for you in your call. For example, you could focus on professional situations like meetings, conference calls or interviews. Or if you like, you can just use a voice call to practice conversation skills in English. And for a limited time, you can try your first call for 50% off. A 50% discount off your first call for a limited period to make the most of that, to take advantage of it, just go to getspoken.com slash LEP. Or you can click a Spoken logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm currently sitting here in my flat in Paris, and it's pouring with rain outside. Lovely. Um, it's absolutely pouring with rain. How often do I say that on the podcast? How often do I start an episode by saying that I'm sitting here in Paris and it's raining? Quite often, I think, actually. Um, it does rain quite a lot here, even though London is the city with the rainy reputation, right? But, you know, I just checked some data from a website called weatherguide.com and apparently Paris gets more rainfall per year than London does, particularly during the summer. It actually rains more in Paris than it does in London on average. It's slightly hotter here in Paris during the year than in London, but it rains more. The only month when it rains more in London is November. So there you go. Paris is more rainy than London. Another stereotype smashed there. So anyway, I'm sitting here in September with the the rain coming down outside and I feel a million miles away from Arizona where I was with my wife just a few weeks ago. It feels like a million miles away. Actually, it's 8,565 kilometres away. What's that in miles? That's um, it's about 5,322.044 miles. Yeah, I just worked that out in my head. I didn't really. Just Googled it, didn't I? Obviously, I paused the podcast and Googled it. So anyway, it feels like a million miles away. It's actually 5,322.044 miles away. That's the distance between here and, let's say, the Grand Canyon. But it feels like a million miles away. Um, and you know that feeling you've been on holiday and it's you come back with that holiday feeling, you feel all fresh and invigorated. And then within a few weeks, it's back to normal again. Anyway, so here is the, the final episode in this series about the things that I did and saw 
uh, on my summer holiday this year. I've tried to make this more than just a description of a holiday. It's also been a chance for me to talk about some topics that I hope are as interesting for you as they were for me when I found out about them. You can find a lot of the things I'm saying written on the page for this episode. So if you want to check out words and phrases, or if you would like to read the parts that are transcribed, then you can. In the last episode, I talked to you about our road trip around the so-called Grand Staircase, a huge area of land where about two billion years' worth of rock are exposed by tectonic activity and erosion, causing or creating uh, these massive canyons and rock formations that are awe-inspiring, but also revealing of the Earth's geological history. In this episode, I'd like to bring the series to a close, so I'm, I'm going to need to be fairly quick to get all of this in. I'd like to bring the series to a close here by telling you a few more anecdotes and also describing the rest of the trip. Then, after this episode, uh, we'll be back to normal podcasting with some upcoming episodes featuring conversations with guests and some other things. So... After visiting Zion and Bryce Canyons in Utah in the last episode, we then drove sort of in a southeasterly direction and across the state border into Arizona and also crossed into the area known as the Navajo Nation Reservation, an area of land that includes parts of Arizona, Utah and New Mexico. I don't know if you've ever been to that part of the world, but it's I mean, I've described how beautiful it is, but just to give you an idea, it's like, it's very, it's hot, it's dry, a lot of it's kind of desert area, you get um, uh, things like, uh, lots. there's lots of plant life there, I mean, although it's, I've described it as a desert, it's actually very rich in life, there's all sorts of different plants and things, I mean, cactuses and other other little um, kind of herbs and things that grow naturally, and loads of different types of animals out there as well. So um, we drove into the Navajo Nation Reservation, which is kind of like this zone that includes parts of three states, Arizona, Utah, and Mexico. It's kind of in the corner of those, those three states. Now, I already knew a few things about Native Americans or American Indians or just the Navajo tribe, but I sort of hadn't realized that we would be entering their territory like this and staying there for a few days. In fact, I didn't even really know that this thing called the Navajo Nation existed. I knew that the Indians had been moved onto reservations and, and so on. I knew a bit about the Navajo. Like, I knew that many Indians uh, were moved from the areas that they used to inhabit onto reservations in the 19th century. Um, I, knew that, uh, I knew that many like Indian tribes, uh, like the Navajo, had been forced in the late... 1800s by the US Army to move onto these reservations, which in many cases were basically just like prisons on very un- inhospitable land. They were moved there just because the United States government didn't really know what else to do with them. And which by today's standard, this would be considered to be a, a violation of basic human rights. I also knew that the Navajo's population had been decimated by these changes and that this was the same story with many Indian tribes across the country. But I didn't realise that the Navajo had actually been given a whole area of land much bigger than their original reservations that they could govern themselves with their own elected president and other official posts. I didn't know that and I think it's worth saying a few things about the Navajo Nation because I learned some stuff 
that I didn't know before. So first of all, the Navajo Nation, it's a sovereign nation with their own elected president. The land, which includes parts of Arizona, New Mexico and Utah, is about 27 square kilometres. And on that land, you can find various sites of great cultural and spiritual significance to the Navajo. And there are over 300,000 people living there. So for a few days, we were living on Navajo land and we met quite a lot of Navajo people who work in the hotels, the restaurants and as tour guides to some of the natural monuments. These days, the Navajo are modern people, of course. They don't live exactly like their ancestors did But the brief bits of contact I had with some of them was really interesting. It was really cool for me to chat with some people, particularly a tour guide uh, called Brian. Yep, his name was Brian, which, um, I mean, is it, should, should he have been given some sort of like Native American name? Well, his name was Brian. Anyway, so I, I chatted with a guy called Brian, uh, a tour guide that we met in Antelope Canyon. And it was cool just to realise that although our ancestors were worlds apart, like mine would have been like English families raised as Anglican Christians in towns in the north of England, uh, in Yorkshire, uh, and and like Brian's ancestors would have lived on that land and hunted for deer and fish and lived in earthen houses called Hogan's and even fought with the US Army and, and like experienced the um, the struggle of being moved to, to new land and put on reservations. So although our great-grandparents lived utterly different lives and came from totally different worlds, I discovered that, certainly with Brian, that I shared some surprising things in common with him. Just interesting that, you know, the the kind of the globalised nature of the world these days. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about kind of um, this tour guide that I met, who was quite an impressive guy um, in a bit. Uh, but let me just give you a sort of short history of the Navajo, very short history. So they used to live in the Arizona area, living on the land in simple wood and earth structures, hunting for animals, performing their rituals, living by their beliefs in the importance of living in harmony with the supernatural powers of nature as they saw it. Uh, But as settlers from Europe began moving west and populating more and more of the land, um, those settlers clashed with the Navajo, making life difficult for the settlers and prospectors moving through. Uh, And so uh, the, the Navajo were forced by the American government and the US Army to move three hundred miles to the east in new mexico and they had to walk there that's the thing so they were forced like these this huge community uh this huge tribe were forced to walk 300 miles to new mexico in winter as well all of them the men and the women and children the old people they all had to walk 300 miles in the middle of winter uh hundreds of them died on their way and generally, the population of the Navajo was nearly wiped out by the general upheaval of this whole um, this whole move. Um, the you know the consequences of the move and the the way that their whole way of life became severely limited and basically kind of impossible impossible to live like they used to. Um, and uh, the the population was was badly affected by the way that they were treated. And their reduction in population is now often referred to 
as a genocide. It's a kind of a tragedy. When you learn about um, the Navajo and the way they lived, it's sort of a tragedy of what happened to them. Now, talking about the Navajo or any you know, in American Indians, I don't want to... There's a danger, right? There's a danger that you end up kind of um, romanticizing them because you see images of like Native Americans from um, uh, movies and from books and the, the ways in which their story has been told. It's been turned into a sort of a myth. It's hard to know the reality of what those people were like. And it, 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 it's easy to start romanticizing them as being these kind of spiritual people who lived in harmony with nature. So I think that that's not the right thing to do. You've got to try and avoid romanticizing them. But at the same time, it's very hard not to do that when you learn about the way in which they lived. And when you learn about, for example, the, the environment that they lived in and, you know, things like the the areas in, in, in um, like Arizona, for example, and how beautiful they are and the, the, the uh, what am I trying to say? When you get an appreciation for the landscape and when you come close to nature right um and you start to appreciate the 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 way it works like the cycle of nature and things like that and 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 how it should be protected and how important it is and how the ecosystem is bigger than all of us and how um you know we need to maintain it because if we don't then it can quite easily uh, go wrong and make life on earth inhospitable you know that we live in harmony with nature and if if we don't respect that then nature will bite us on the ass you know um and when you look at the lifestyle I d- without trying to romanticize them when you look at the lifestyle of a tribe like the navajo as they used to live you realize that they had this kind of um pragmatic spiritualism i mean they worshipped uh nature based on the idea that they had to live in harmony with it and that was the key to maintaining uh you know life as it were and the key to successful living i mean it's very it, it's it's it is romantic to talk about that because when you live in a city and and you know when you live in a world that is so uh, developed with industry and all this stuff then essentially it's idealistic to start kind of dreaming about you know the way the navajo used to live in in uh, harmony with nature and you end up st- sounding like a sort of idealistic hippie or something you know but it's hard not to start thinking those things when you actually learn about them. It's also tragic the way that they were, you know, basically treated by the US government back in the late 1800s when we didn't really know any better, I suppose, when these people tragically were considered to be less than human and they were treated in that way. It's a tragic story, really. Um, Now, it wasn't until much later that the remaining Navajo were not only allowed to go back onto their land, but also to claim it again. Um, and then allowed, they were allowed to govern themselves. Essentially, during that whole period of, of Western expansion in the 19th century, they were, they were just not included in the grand narrative of Western expansion that built the USA of the modern age, despite being the original American people. Usually the American Indians were just represented as savage bad guys in Western movies, 
although this has changed in the last few decades when their stories have been told more respectfully. Also, I learned that the Navajo played a really important part in World War II. I don't know if you knew, you knew about this. this. This is the story of the Navajo Code Talkers. When the US was at war with, with Japan after Pearl Harbor, one of the most important things for the US Navy was being able to communicate secretly using codes, right? So they created loads of codes, um, but the Japanese code breakers were so clever and sophisticated that pretty much any code that the Americans came up with got broken. And this was costing the US Army lots and lots of lives. In the end, what they did was they employed bilingual Navajo people to create a code based on their language. For example, many words in Navajo... You know, they were used to refer to different, you know, uh, battleships and and uh, planes and things like that. And uh, I think this worked partly because many words in, in Navajo can have multiple meanings. Well, obviously, first of all, the Japanese weren't familiar with the Navajo language. In fact, almost no one outside the Navajo community were familiar with the language. So that made it sort of perfect that this whole language was already there that no one understood and it was like really different to other languages that existed in the world and if basically you hadn't grown up learning that that language there was no way that you could break it part of that was because that um, many words in Navajo can have multiple meanings it's a tonal language you know Um, many words can have multiple meanings depending on how those words are pronounced using different tones Some words can mean four totally different things depending on the tone used when saying them. I suppose in that way it's a bit like uh, Mandarin Chinese or other tonal languages. So the Navajo people employed by the government um, to translate messages into code based on their language are known as the Navajo Code Talkers and they have since been recognised as heroes and given numerous awards by the US government because they created this code and they there was a team of about 29 Navajo Code Talkers who were employed, they, they, were, they joined the army and they were used as uh, code creators and um, essentially they helped the American army to win that war um you know it's fascinating how this american indian tribe suddenly became vital to american interests and greatly helped the country to win the war um so we met a few native people or um indian people navajo people while we were there and i wondered what life is like for them and how they feel that they fit into life in the u.s with just the limited contact that we had with them they seemed like nice people but who knows, really? But the the first impressions that we got seem they seemed fairly sort of they're fairly chilled out, quite nice people, really, uh, with a sense of humour. That's one thing I noticed. I mean, they they could have been like vindictive and bitter, considering the past, but they didn't seem to be particularly vindictive. They didn't seem to uh, be like really unfriendly or anything. In fact, the people we met seemed to be quite level-headed and and humorous. That was the thing that stuck out for me, the humour. I think probably the fact that they govern themselves helps to give them a sense of pride and independence. Um, And um, So being in this part of the world and seeing the different landscapes and the people, this really made me think of some films that I'd seen 
because films are often the, my reference points because I've watched a lot of films over the years, you know. Um, one particular film that I thought of while we were in this area um, is a film called The Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. He made that film in the mid-70s. don't know if you've ever seen it. It's one of my favourite films, The Outlaw Josie Wales. It's all about a Civil War fugitive who's running from the uh, the union the union army um so you know kind of around the time of the american civil war you know the union was the army from the north and then the confederates were the army in the south okay so uh, this was a, a civil war fugitive running from the union army at the start of the film this is the clint eastwood character called josie wales at the start of the film he's just a peaceful farmer just trying to work on his land. But soldiers, Union soldiers come and they burn his house down. This kind of gang of um, marauding, out-of-control Union soldiers come. They burn his house down. They kill his wife and child. And he's so consumed by revenge that he becomes an outlaw, the outlaw Josie Wales, a sort of an avenging uh, an avenging ghost, which is the sort of typical Clint Eastwood Western character, this avenging angel um, in the form of this kind of badass uh, gunslinger. And so he becomes this outlaw and he's basically just sort of like traveling uh, across the country, um, escaping from the Union, trying to find a place where he can finally settle down and probably die. And on his way, he sort of picks up this odd group of companions. And it becomes something of an unconventional family. It's a quirky Western with moments of great action, but also some funny moments with interesting characters. Um, and a really good script, a script written in this kind of uh, Western dialect. And it was filmed in some of the locations that we visited. And in the film, there is an Indian character... Um, and he he um, he's played by an Indian actor called Chief Dan George. I think Chief Dan Do George originally came from a tribe uh, from Canada. Um, so the actor isn't Navajo. And also the character that he plays in the film also isn't Navajo. His character is a Cherokee, uh, a different um, tribe. But the Cherokee experienced similar displacement to the Navajo. And they also were ordered to walk hundreds of miles away from their land into reservations and many people died and this basically destroyed their way of life a way of life that they developed over many many years and was in harmony with the land the wildlife and the natural environment in general so there's one scene in the film when this native american character played by chief dan george who's who became something of a famous actor in the 70s. He was in several films um, acting as um, Native American characters. So this character, um, in one scene of the film, tells a little story. He mentions the Trail of Tears, which is the, um, the, 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 the long walk that the Cherokee had to do, in which many of their people died. The Navajo one is called The Long Walk. The Cherokee one is called The Trail of Tears. So he talks about this story and, and he talks about how him and some other members of his tribe actually went to Washington to meet with the Secretary of the Interior in order to try and negotiate. And they were all 
proud and they wore suits and hats like Abraham Lincoln because um, because they were naive, you know, they were innocent. They didn't really realise, uh, they thought that they were being treated with respect when in fact it was just the kind of political um, uh, sort of rhetoric and political diplomacy of, of Washington. So when they went, they, they wore uh, like clothes like Abraham Lincoln and they were considered to be one of the civilised tribes. Um, but they were simply told to endeavour to persevere. So when they went to negotiate, they were just told to endeavour to persevere, which basically means just try to survive. So endeavour means try and persevere means survive. They were, they were basically told, no, we're not going to help you. We're still moving you into reservations and you'll just have to try and survive. So the Indian chiefs in this story went away thinking that they'd achieved something because the language sounded so respectful and they'd been called the civilised tribe. And the, the language was, was important and respectful sounding and because they'd been impressed by the posh surroundings in Washington. And it wasn't until later that they thought about those words, endeavour to persevere. They thought about those words and they realised that nothing had changed really and that they were just being left in appalling conditions with nothing other than the words try to survive from Washington. Uh, left to live on reservations built on land that wouldn't yield anything for them and once they'd thought about it they declared war on the union now i like this scene in the film because dan george delivers the story with dry humor it's kind of funny but it's also a bit tragic and it's also a chance to hear english spoken by a uh by an american indian um so i'm going to play the scene to you and just a bit of context here chief dan george's character emerges from his home like a little wooden home in the in the forest he emerges from his home because he thinks that someone is approaching in fact that person who's approaching is clint eastwood's character josie wales this outlaw who is just moving through the area now dan george whose character is called lone Watty, emerges from his house trying to get an edge trying to get an advantage on the intruder i think he's probably heard that uh, there's a, a big bounty which you could claim, like a big uh, cash reward you can claim if you can kill him. So he emerges trying to get an edge on on um, uh, uh, Josie Wales, but uh, Clint's character, Josie Wales, manages to sneak up on him instead. Then um, Lone Watty, Dan George's character, talks about how the white man has been sneaking up on him and his tribe for years. And then he talks about the frock coat that he's wearing, the same coat that he wore when he went to Washington, and also a top hat like Abraham Lincoln used to wear. Then he tells the story of meeting the Secretary of the Interior, um, not the President, but the Secretary of the Interior, the person responsible for, for example, dealing with the American Indians. He tells that story and how he was told to endeavour to persevere. <laughs> Howdy. Howdy. Name's Josie Wales. I've heard of that name. Some said you'd be headed this way. And they said a man could get rich on reward money. He could kill you. Seems like 
You was looking to gain some money here. Actually, I was looking to gain an edge. I thought you might be someone who would sneak up behind me with a gun. Where'd you ever get an idea like that? Besides, it ain't supposed to be easy to sneak up behind an Indian. I'm an Indian, all right. But here in the nation, they call us the civilized tribe. They call us civilized because we're easy to sneak up on. White men have been sneaking up on us for years. Cherokee, huh? Yeah. They sneaked up on us and they told us we wouldn't be happy here. They said we would be happier in the nations. So they took away our land and sent us here. I have a fine woman and two sons, but they all died on the Trail of Tears. And now the white man is sneaking up on me again. So Clint Eastwood stopped listening ages ago and he's already walked away. Seems like we can't trust the white man. You bet we can. Wore this uh, frock coat in Washington before the war. We wore them because uh, we belonged to the five civilized tribes. We dressed ourselves up like Abraham Lincoln. You know, we got to see the Secretary of the Interior. And he said, Boy, you boys sure look civilized. He congratulated us. And he gave us medals for looking so civilized. We told him about how our land had been stolen people were dying when we finished he shook our hands and said endeavor to persevere they stood us in the line John Jumper Chili McIntosh Buffalo Hump and uh, Jim Puckmark and me I'm Lone Wadi they took our pictures and the newspaper said, Indians vowed to endeavor to persevere. We thought about it for a long time, endeavor to persevere. And when we had thought about it long enough, we declared war on the Union. So Clint Eastwood's character has fallen asleep during the story. Okay, so that was just a clip from uh, the outlaw Josie Wales featuring that speech from the character played by Chief Dan George. You can see that video on the website, and I recommend you watch the film. It's a really good one. So the Indians vow to endeavour to persevere. It's a great performance by Dan George, and it showed uh, dignity and sadness and, and humour as well. Um, now, it's not hard to see the irony. When you, when you know about these things, it's not hard to see the irony when you see American people today on Twitter or something complaining about how immigrants are coming and stealing their land and not assimilating to the culture, the irony is um, 
hard to escape. So um, we checked into some accommodation in a town called Page, uh, which is close to a few sort of things that you would go and see, like Lake Powell and uh, Antelope Canyon. And we went to see an amazing thing called Horseshoe Bend. And we also um, took a tour of a place called Antelope Canyon, Uh, We went to Lower Antelope Canyon. There's lower and higher. We went to Lower. And Antelope Canyon is an incredible place. Basically, it's just a few cracks in the ground, essentially. Uh, But it's it's a lot more special than it sounds. So, cracks in the ground, right? And um, the fact is that these what used to probably be small fissures in the ground had been eroded by um, flash floods, you know, a flash flood, that's where, for example, sudden rainfall causes lots of water to suddenly come rushing down uh, all of the rocks. And you might get like a, a small riverbed or something that's dry for most of the time. But when it rains a lot and there's a huge volume of water that lands, you end up with a torrent of water rushing through um, a dry riverbed. Okay. Now, if you get cracks at the bottom of um, a, a let's say a riverbed that that sits on top of some some rock those cracks would be subject to these these powerful um um rushes of water that come through because of flash floods and that's what happened at antelope canyon these cracks in the ground got washed and eroded by powerful streams of water and now what you get is that you get these spaces where you can walk through there's a there are fairly small cracks at the top but inside um the walls of the this these tiny little canyons have been eroded away so that you end up with um like incredible shapes that have been carved by flowing water so the walls are all smooth and they flow a bit like um the way that water flows with different current you can see that the way the currents have changed the shape of the walls and the light flows in the light comes in through the cracks in the top and creates these spotlights and uh the 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 stone in there changes color it's absolutely stunning and you can walk through it in about half an hour and uh you know lots of tourists go through there and um the tour companies that operate there are run by the navajo so we booked ourselves on a tour that would be run by uh, a tour company. And basically the tour would involve like about 10 tourists walking through um, Lower Antelope Canyon being accompanied by a tour guide. And I'm just going to give you an example of their sort of dry sense of humour. Uh, so we arrived at um, we, we arrived for our 12.20 tour about 30 minutes early because we thought that there would be crowds. So we arrived at about sort of 11.45, 11.50 for our tour, which was going to start at 12.20. And uh, we noticed that um, quite a lot of uh, the tourists were being kind of a bit rude with the staff, just being a bit impolite and demanding, which is a pity. You know the way that tourists can be, um, you know the way that tourists, when for some reason when people become tourists, when they are part of a group, uh, they sort of forget to be nice or people can be just a bit rude with the the locals who are kind of serving them. You know what I mean? So, I, I, you know, we noticed a few examples of this, like people just being a bit rude and sort of disrespectful to the locals. And in fact, I noticed that the couple in front of us in the queue 
who weren't being very nice. So their, their tour was at 12.20, but they were like demanding to be part of the earlier tour at 11.50 because the, the problem for them was that there wasn't an air-conditioned waiting room and everyone was like waiting in the shade in a covered waiting area. So they were like demanding to be put on an earlier tour. But the girl behind the counter told them that there was like no space on the 11.50 tour and they just had to wait. And and this couple were being a bit difficult and stuff. And okay, fair enough, there wasn't an air-conditioned room. But, you know, this whole bit of land is not supposed to have lots of buildings on it. And after all, we were out in the desert on this old... Uh, american indian reservation so what did they expect but anyway they were sort of demanding this stuff and complaining that there wasn't air conditioning and and things like that so that was a bit disappointing and then when it was our turn we made it when we got to the desk and spoke to the girl we kind of made an effort to try and be nice you know so i said hello we've got a canyon tour booked and the girl said which tour and i said uh, it's twelve twenty, and she replied it's already gone sorry they've left already and my wife was like what you know and then the girl and the girl just had a straight face and then i realized that she was just joking just like really dry humor she's like no it's already gone sorry and then she smiled and she was like no i'm just joking you can you can join the 1151 if you want so even though the the previous couple had been told in no uncertain terms that they couldn't join the 1150 tour because they weren't being very nice uh we came along with a smile and the, and she made a little joke and then said yeah you can just join the 1151 so, you know, it's one of those situations where you feel like, oh, okay, so they they don't make a big deal out of it, but they kind of, they seem to have a bit of a sense of humour. Um, anyway, so I've got some time for that attitude because I've worked in bars and restaurants and in shops and I've worked in customer service situations. And I think you have to have a bit of a sense of humour because people can treat you quite badly. And customers sometimes, although the customer is is always right customers sometimes feel that they can be rude to you so uh i found it quite amusing that uh she um she was joking like that and also that she was telling this other couple no sorry there's no way you can join that tour and then she said to us yeah you can join the 1150 tour if you want (laughs) suited us quite well um so then we met brian our tour guide um his name's brian yazzie and um so we were joined by a group of about 10, 10 tourists. And I think that, um, as I was saying, people, when they are in tourist groups, I think that's kind of when people are at their worst. I don't know why, but groups of tourists can act so rudely, pushing in front of each other, showing no respect to the guide, not really listening to the guide, maybe looking at their phone or their watch while the guide is speaking, showing no particular deference to the incredibly significant monument that they were visiting, and also doing some stupid and dangerous things like we saw tourists like leaning over cliffs to take the perfect selfie or even like wandering off the path to take photos um, and, you know, not realising that there are snakes and things like that. Um, so anyway, Brian, the guy, dealt with all of this kind of stuff by using some seriously dry humour. So I can't remember all of the things he said, but at one point in his little speech at the beginning of the tour, he told us all that 11 people had been bitten by snakes uh, already this week. Was it this week or was it that morning? I think he said that morning. He's like, we've had 11 people bitten by snakes already this morning. 
and everyone was like shocked and they listened really carefully so it's like just make sure that you don't step off the path because the snakes will they they bury themselves in the sand so you can't see them they coil up and they jump out at you and we've already had 11 people bitten this morning so please stick to the path which is not true i mean like my wife leant over to me and she was like he's he's not he's lying right and i was like yeah i think so but you know stick to the path but he got everyone's attention he also told us when we were in the canyon by the way in the canyon that we went through there were like these kind of metal ladders in certain places that you had to climb up to get in and out of parts of the canyon and those you know were potentially dangerous spots and uh the rules were very strict you know you you weren't allowed to take photographs while you were on the ladders for obvious reasons because if you're taking a photograph you're not holding on properly you might fall or you might drop your phone and it could land on someone's head and so to make to make this point he told us that a woman earlier that morning had fallen off the ladder and that she'd she'd like fallen all the way down head over feet and she'd landed on her head on the bottom step and if you looked really carefully you could still see some of the blood stains in the sand and so all the tourists were like all shocked like looking for the blood stains in the sand and i was like i was thinking that's not true come on that that that's obviously an exaggeration and then after a few moments he would kind of like crack a smile and go i'm joking that didn't really happen but please don't make my story come true um and he he also made a few little comments like he was saying so he was he was saying like wow traveling thousands of miles to just walk through some cracks in the ground it's kind of crazy right so he seemed to have like a pretty cool outlook on life and i talked to him at one point i overheard him mentioning to a friend who passed him so as we were walking down to the canyon uh one of his uh, friends another guide walked past him and they exchanged a few words and his friend said you know how's it going and they they kind of like did that cool american thing where they kind of give give each other five just really cool casually i don't know how americans do that they're so good at giving five to each other they just do it without thinking right like for me as a british person if i give someone five i usually get it wrong and i miss the hand or i do it really awkwardly and sort of like my finger clips their their wrist and it all goes wrong you know i just so awkward i can't do that giving five thing but they're like hey man how's it going and and he was like yeah i got like a an offer at, at this uh, casino i'm gonna play at this casino and i was thinking hello he's got an offer to play at a casino what's he what does he do is he a comedian i thought because i i just you know i could smell the something i was like he's a comedian he's a stand-up comedian or something he's been asked to perform do a show in a in a in a uh, casino in vegas or something and so at, at one point i when i got talking to him i said by the way i couldn't help overhearing you mentioned to your friend that you you would you got like a show in a uh in a casino do you mind if i ask what you do and he was like yeah man i'm a magician so it turned out that our our guide our navajo guide was also a magician and i was like wow that's brilliant what kind of magic do you do and it turns out that he does like sleight of hand magic i mentioned that before when i was talking about pen and teller in the show that we saw in las vegas so brian um is a sleight of hand magician and he specializes in card tricks and he also told me that he is a mentalist (laughs) Uh, a mentalist is someone who does mind magic 
It's not just a crazy person. It's someone who does mind magic. Um, and so this is brilliant because I love all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. Um, oh, brilliant card tricks. That's brilliant. Um, and, and when he said that he was a mentalist, I was like, oh, do you know, uh, do you know a, a British uh, magician, a mentalist called Darren Brown? Because Darren Brown's like one of my favorite magicians, one of my favorite magic guys. And he's really popular in the UK. And I said, do you know Darren Brown? He was like, yeah, of course I know Darren Brown. Yeah, I've read his books. And I was like, you've you've read his books? So have I. I love those books. And I said to him, yeah, we went and saw Penn and Teller's show in Vegas. And he was like, oh, Penn and Teller, they're fantastic. And I was like, yeah, particularly Teller. He's so good at the sleight of hand. And he, you know, and he told me that uh, his biggest influence was uh, David Blaine, the American street uh, magician who you might have seen on TV. And so I had a great time chatting to Brian on the on the tour, and uh, while uh, the other tourists were all taking their selfies and things, um, uh, my wife and I had a nice time chatting to Brian, and um, I was really impressed by him. And I actually looked him up on YouTube, and I've put a couple of videos of Brian's magic on YouTube. I mean, he's just starting out because obviously he's working as a tour guide as well. He's just starting out in magic, but um, I think that he's he's really talented and he could uh, become quite famous. In fact, he told me that he was going to be on America's Got Talent. You know that talent show? Uh, that big talent show where people go and do different performances in front of a group of judges? Well, Brian told me that he would be on America's Got Talent and that he was the first uh, American Indian um, performer to ever appear on America's Got Talent. So I'm not sure exactly when his his appearance is going to happen, but I really hope it works out for him because I thought he was really funny. Uh, he was a really cool guy and his magic is amazing. So I really hope that it works out for him and he gets success if that's what he wants. Um, and um, so we were walking to the canyon with Brian and on the way I asked Brian, about the canyon i was like is this a very significant or special place for for the navajo and he told me that his grandmother used to say that people shouldn't go down there because according to his grandmother it's the home of the winds Ooh, the home of the winds he said and that people shouldn't go down there and i was like oh what so this is like sacred ground that we shouldn't be walking on and he said yeah my grandmother thought so I felt a bit bad at that point. I was thinking, oh God, are we, is this inappropriate for us to be visiting this place with all these other tourists? And I felt a bit bad and I sort of said, well, I'm sure everyone appreciates the beauty of it, which is like the best thing I could think of at the time. But I couldn't help feeling that we shouldn't really be walking there. But Brian seemed to be okay with it. Um, so anyway, we visited Antelope Canyon and it was stunning and uh, we took loads of photos, of course, because every single thing you see is a great photo and you just can't stop taking photos. But um, we did try to kind of stop and put the cameras away and just enjoy the experience of actually being there at the time. Because I think it's a pity when people go to these amazing places and they basically experience the whole thing through their camera or through their phone. You see some people going to amazing places and they've literally got their phone in front of their face and they're filming it all. And they're just like looking at the whole thing through the, the, the lens of the camera. And you kind of feel like saying to them, just put the camera down and actually experience it for real. You can, you can watch the videos later 
but you're here now you should really be taking it all in properly with your own eyes um uh you can see some of the photos on the page for this episode i've just picked a few of them out of the many pictures that we've got uh i've just picked a few so you can get an idea of what it looked like um after after antelope canyon and and our experience there in page and and the stuff we did we drove to another location like a day or two later a place called monument valley and monument valley is is stunning more amazing big rocks we stayed in a hotel that was uh, run by the navajo people and um the hotel's amazing there because it's got views of the valley and views of these big rip rock formations and the hotel is also a trading post where you can buy sort of like American Indian like stuff, you know, like blankets and uh, uh, artwork and, and things like that. And it's also a place to eat. And uh, the hotel's in an amazing spot. It's it's quite neatly built into the the piece into a piece of high ground at the end of this canyon, so it doesn't really stand out too much. It's kind of fairly discreetly like designed into the land, and from the hotel each room has got a view of the valley and there's also a, a fairly big terrace where you can stand and look at the views and things the, the views were, were again incredible um i'll try and describe it to you now briefly um so imagine a, a vastly wide canyon with walls on either side in the distance and then this broad wide open expanse in the middle of this orange or deep red rust colored sand and then in the middle of that three huge monoliths right three huge uh, pieces of rock now they're actually about a thousand feet high these monoliths and these monoliths are basically kind of what remains of the sandstone rock plateau that was there so it's really just these monoliths one of them is like a big table so a huge rectangular block. Another one is like a large square block with a long tower on the other end. And then another one is like a, a, a long, thin, tall tower. Okay, with small towers on the side. Placed on what looked like plinths of rubble in the middle of this massive um, canyon. So these huge monoliths. And you just stand there in total awe, like your jaw drops to the ground. Like, oh, wow, look at that. It's the kind of landscape that you've seen in, in Western movies. You know, that classic American cowboy movie backdrop where it's like this kind of orange sand and these big, massive standing rocks um, in a big valley. Um, it's that landscape. And you stand there and, and um, we stood there for a, an hour or hour and a half as the sun went down. And you can see the shadows of these these uh, monoliths um, stretching out across the valley, across like hundreds and hundreds of, of meters. Absolutely amazing environment to find yourself in. So again, like mad sort of these abstract shapes on a clear blue and rust colored background with shadows stretching out across, you know, hundreds of meters of, of land. And again, you can sort of see faces in these rock formations and uh and they have old names given by the navajo and so we experienced uh, sunset there and then uh, that evening at the hotel they actually projected a movie onto the wall of the hotel so uh from the balcony at our hotel room we were able to sit there and eat our dinner 
and look at this movie that was being projected onto the wall of the hotel just on the other side. And they had a speaker and stuff. And so um, we watched this film. And the film that they chose to project was called Fort Apache, a Western from 1948, I think, directed by John Ford, um, a director of like some really classic films. Um, and the film starred John Wayne and Henry Fonda, these two big legendary American f- uh, film stars. And the film... Uh, features scenes filmed in Monument Valley. That's why they chose that film. Several reasons why they chose that film. One is because many of the scenes were filmed right there in Monument Valley. And Monument Valley is famous for being in Western films. And also they chose to play it because of the role of uh, American Indians in the movie as well. So we sat there eating our dinner and um, it was just amazing to watch the film this great film that really really good film i was surprised at how great it was and how much i enjoyed it it was one of those old black and white movies but i really got into it um so it was amazing to watch the film and then literally to turn your head to the right and then see the exact environment that you're watching on the film right there the real environment right there with the stars above and everything just in front of us amazing um and it was also interesting to me that the navajo at the hotel chose to screen this film in particular because usually western films uh, present rather a bad image of native americans usually the native americans are presented as like these savage bad guys but this film was different uh, it was made just after world war Two, and the general tone of the film is about how sort of foolish leadership and the so-called glory of war usually just leads good young men to die so it's kind of a a a film that's kind of critical of of war and it presents the way in which the american military in the in the 19th century misunderstood the complex nature of the american indians and also how they underestimated their military strength in the film you get like a a fort uh for the u.s army out in in monument valley and they come into contact with the local uh, apache indians and the military leader fails to organize a uh, a diplomatic solution and instead he arrogantly assumes that he's going to be able to beat them in 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 combat but uh, he underestimates them and misunderstands their military strategy and ends up being defeated by the apache and many young uh, soldiers uh, are killed so it's a sort of um, an anti sort of like an anti-war film with with some respect for the um for the native americans and who are presented as brave and civilized and and great strategists so in the film all of the american all of the american indian parts the the apaches in the film uh, are played to great effect by local Navajo people and the end of the film sees them defeat a garrison of American soldiers so it's pretty clear why the locals like the film and it's a it's a really good film and John Ford was a masterful director so if you like westerns there are two recommendations for you The Outlaw Josie Wales which is like a, a 70s western and Fort Apache by John Ford from 1948 and that night in fact like most of the nights that we spent out in the desert we uh we couldn't sleep and um we just couldn't sleep for some reason 
not because of jet lag, because I think that by that point we'd kind of got over the jet lag and all the nights we'd spent in, in Los Angeles, we had no trouble sleeping. So it wasn't because of jet lag, but I think it was just because we were sort of quite blown away by all of the stimulation of these environments that we'd seen. It, it was actually quite hard to take it all in. So that night and many other nights in this part of the holiday, we both lay in our bed trying to sleep, but just feeling wide awake with this incredible and powerful landscape just outside the window. In the morning, we drove down into the valley um, to to see the um, huge monoliths a bit closer. And again, when you look up at them, you see lots of faces and forms and things. And you can imagine how the Native Americans must have stared at those rocks and seen all sorts of visions and things in them. They were really inspiring places. Amazing. So uh, eventually we, we drove out of the Navajo Nation and into the national parks again. And we visited the Grand Canyon. And um, we we arrived at the Grand Canyon just before sunset. And we managed to see some incredible early sites of the Grand Canyon. I mean, you know, we'd been blown away by Monument Valley, but when we arrived at the Grand Canyon, it was like somehow even more impressive. First of all, it's the biggest thing I've ever seen. And just to imagine what it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you can imagine standing on the edge of it, from you to the horizon, between you and the horizon, there's this huge, vast network of different canyons, jutting rocks, cracks, diving deep into... Uh, winding rivers down below imagine seeing about 300 canyons all at the same time and all of them part of one much larger canyon which bends all the way around the corner beyond your vision it's like that basically so we saw the sunset there and and um we even uh caught some views of of elk by the side of the road elk are these um uh, deer large deer with big antlers on their heads a bit like reindeer so we see some views of elk by the side of the road and stuff like that and we had our our dinner and again that night we couldn't sleep i felt a million and one thoughts coming to me while i was lying there uh, wide awake in bed um, some thoughts were my fears and worries like my whole life flashing before my eyes you know the feeling when you can't sleep sometimes and your mind insists on playing back to you lots of memories from your past, even things that you have like would rather forget, you know, things like embarrassing moments or sort of disappointments and things like that. So lying in bed with all these memories flashing past my 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 mind and also thinking about the future as well, you know, like thoughts of positivity and joy about the future just a a weird sort of um, experience where you want to sleep but your mind goes nope no 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 I'm gonna play you I'm gonna I'm gonna bombard you with thoughts about the past and the future now and there's nothing you can do about it it is weird isn't it how sometimes when you can't sleep your mind just kind of takes off and you have to hold on for the ride you know when you can't sleep and your mind races around to different things and you just can't stop it and you really want to just sleep and switch off, but you can't. Normally, I guess in normal life, you have ordinary things to deal with that occupy your mind. Like, you know, remembering to iron your shirt in the morning and dealing with little work-related problems and things like that. But being away from it all, when you go travelling or on holiday, your thoughts become a bit kind of untethered. 
basically, it's called taking stock, you know, when you just take time to reflect on things. And this is what we often do when we're on holiday, isn't it? We take stock, we use it as a chance to sort of reflect on things and just think about life a little bit. So um, I reflected and tried to work things out somehow, while also just trying to get a good night's sleep. For example, I find these days that I'm I'm trying to stop worrying about small things. I don't know about you. I'm sure it's a common thing that you get caught up on small things and that that causes you stress and anxiety. Um, I'm trying to stop worrying about the small things because ultimately they're just small things. Because I can get quite caught up on details and I can blow small concerns out of proportion. I can make mountains out of molehills, just like we all do. And that causes anxiety and so on. We all do it, right? But I think we can't afford to do that. We can't put significance onto every little thing. Because it's just no way to live your life. And it's best to let some things just slide. And to focus on the big stuff. You know, the main things, the big things in life. You've got to prioritise. I was also thinking about the whole universe and just remembering random episodes from my life it's moments like that that you experience bits of regret but also it's moments where you 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 decide to sort of have a bit of resolve and to decide that you want to try and make the rest of your life as good as it can be and to do the best that you can and to not waste any time and not take things for granted and to do your best, you know, so that you don't have things to regret in the future or that you don't have things to feel awkward or embarrassed about in the future. And by by embarrassing things, I'm talking about things like missed opportunities in the past or moments where I feel bad now because I look back and I see moments where I chose not to do something because it was a, a, a lack of confidence or a sort of shyness that held me back. And it may have, you know, led me to miss out on something, you know, those sorts of things. Or at least moments where I've done things because uh, because um, I was scared, you know. And, and that moment became defined by a sort of fear. And so anyway, I just ended up reflecting on those things. Also, I was thinking about the podcast because obviously it's an important thing for me. I was thinking about the podcast. I was thinking, what is it that makes my audience really, what is it that my audience really wants from me and from this podcast? And how can I continue to provide the sort of content that will really benefit people while also allowing me to pursue the things I want in life? So there were lots of strands running through my head, man. I think I worked a few things out. Now, from the Grand Canyon, after spending uh, a couple of days there, we drove back towards Las Vegas where we would uh, take our quick flight back to Los Angeles for the final part of the trip. And we spent an an unremarkable uh, night in a town um, called uh, Kingman. Um, This town, which is basically like a truck stop on the way to Las Vegas. Again, we couldn't sleep there. (laughs) Both of us just lying, thinking about the future, thinking about like the future of our child and the family that we were going to raise and, and, and all those important things. Sometimes, I guess, there are times for sleeping and there are times for reflecting and thinking and planning the future, you know. Um, but anyway, the day after that, we, um, 
the, the sort of the last day of our road trip, uh, we experienced the eclipse, the day of the eclipse. Now, there was a solar eclipse while we were there in the States. I guess you all know what a solar eclipse is. It's when the moon passes in front of the sun and fully eclipses the sun, hiding the sun for a few moments before then the sun reappears again on the other side of the moon. It's a magical moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. It's seriously weird and amazing. The first time I ever experienced a solar eclipse was, I guess, in 1999. I was living in Liverpool. I was a student. And uh, I remember the eclipse happened and uh, there was lots of stuff on TV about it. My friends and I went out into the back garden of our house and looked at the eclipse through like little um, little sort of special lenses, you know, that you use so that you protect your eyes. And it's an incredible moment when everything goes dark and the sun is like this black disc in the sky with um, this ring ring of fire around it. It's seriously weird and amazing. The Seeing these celestial bodies crossing past each other is like a ballet of cosmic proportions. And that this is another thing that makes you realise how small you really are in the grand scheme of things. It's also extraordinary that this happens. I would say it's a rare occurrence. It actually happens fairly, fairly regularly, surprisingly enough. Some ancient cultures thought that solar eclipses were extremely significant events. And it's easy to see why. Because everything goes dark just for a few minutes, like it's night time. The birds stop singing. Animals behave strangely. The sun is like a black dot in the sky with this shining halo around it. And then everything goes back to normal. And if you didn't know it was coming, and in fact if you already worshipped the sun you would probably read massive significance into it when it just happened sort of suddenly without expectation. It also looks incredible. I mean, you're not supposed to look directly at it, of course, because then you're basically staring right at the sun, which will blind you if you look at it for long enough. The light will scorch your retinas and seriously damage your eyesight. You have to use those special filtering glasses to see it. And on the news, they were repeatedly telling everyone not to look at the sun because it could blind you. But as we know, of course, Donald Trump looked directly at it, of course. I'm not sure why he did that. I suppose he couldn't help himself. He looked directly at the sun for a moment. Not long enough for it to blind him, to be fair. But still, don't look directly at the sun, Donald like everyone told him. What was he thinking? My retinas, folks, they're the greatest retinas. I've got I've got the greatest retinas. They say you should wear these little glasses. They're made in China. So, anyway, the eclipse was visible in certain spots along the breadth of the country. On the road to Las Vegas, though, we didn't get the full eclipse. We just got a partial eclipse in that spot. And we were actually in the middle of driving to the airport uh, to catch the plane, so we didn't stop to check it out properly. But in any case, uh, we wouldn't have been able to see anything anyway because there was actually cloud cover on that day. But what we did experience was this kind of murky half-light at the time of the eclipse. Everything went a bit spooky. Uh, on the journey, there were these large black clouds collecting in the distance and some lighter cloud over our heads. And we started fairly early in the morning, so the sun was already quite low in the sky. The eclipse happened at around 10 a.m., uh, and also with the cloud cover, the light was already quite dim. But the eclipse happened overhead 
And when that happened, everything kind of went murky, like this dark yellow color. And cars put their headlights on and stuff. And there were also in the distance, there were these freaky flash rainstorms. And they came towards us and we got covered. The car was covered in these massive raindrops and there were there was lightning in the distance and stuff. So for about 10 minutes, there was this strange kind of end of the world type feeling as the darkening sky was lit up by flashes of lightning in the distance. And we saw forked lightning striking rock formations up on our left at the top of this shallow canyon. And eventually we came into Vegas and we just went straight to the airport. No need to stop there again straight to the airport, took our flight. And then arriving in Los Angeles, we had a much better car rental experience than the first time. Uh, we, luckily, we didn't choose wrong cars again. Uh, I think we went for Alamo or some other established company. And again, within minutes, we were in the garage choosing our car. They let us choose our car this time. They were like, just go in and choose any mid-range car that you want. So I kind of said to my wife, okay, which one do you like? Which one do you want? Because I wanted her to be comfortable in the car, right? Because of the pregnancy and stuff. So I was like, you can choose which one do you want? Do you want the Japanese one, an American one? Do you want a hatchback or a saloon car? Have a look at the seats, you know, just make sure that you choose the right kind of seats for you. And my wife was like, I want the red one. So that's apparently that's her criteria for choosing a car, just the color. And I was like, oh, that's it. Simple as that. Okay. So we took the red one and it turned out to be a Chevrolet Cruze. And it was actually a great car, about the size of a Ford Focus and extremely smooth and responsive. That's how it felt anyway. Maybe this was just after having driven a Jeep for a week. I mean, Jeeps are good. They were good for the sort of parts of the trip where we went on some dusty roads and things like that and some uneven ground. It was perfect. But on on the highway, the Jeep is awful. I mean, the aerodynamics are terrible. It's basically a box, isn't it? The aerodynamics are terrible. So you feel like if you have to overtake something in a Jeep, you need loads of space because you slam your foot down on the accelerator to try and raise the speed so you can overtake whatever it is, like the the Winnebago that you're overtaking or something. And nothing happens. You put your foot down, nothing happens. And then a few seconds later, the engine goes, oh, oh, okay, you want us to speed up? Okay. And it makes this complaining noise, lots of noise. And then a few seconds later, you actually feel the, the result of all this stuff and the car slowly speeds up and you can overtake something. But in this uh, Chevrolet, uh, this mid-sized Chevrolet Cruze, it was really good, really responsive. It felt really nippy and fast and it was it dealt with the corners in 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 the parts of the hills where we were staying really really well maybe it's because it's red you know because red cars go faster did you know that red cars are, are are faster than other cars yeah that's not actually scientifically true um but uh, it's true but it but it is true okay it's totally true red cars are f- much faster especially if they're american cars folks anyway so we drove to an Airbnb that we were staying in, in a place called Topanga Canyon. Topanga is an awesome place. It's just along the coastal highway, up into the hills, not far from Santa Monica. This peaceful place in the hills where there are lots of trees and it's kind of this leafy area. Peaceful place where hippies used to live in the 60s and 70s. So in those hills... There are these leafy little canyons with communities of people who've set up their homes on the hillsides. 
and Topanga was a really cool scene to be part of in the early 1970s. Lots of musicians hung out there writing their songs, and this included people like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, and also Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I'm particularly a fan of Neil Young, and I'd read his autobiography, so I knew a lot of the stories of the music that he wrote and recorded there. And I always thought that that all that the music and the stories the whole thing i always thought it sounded amazing this kind of peaceful retreat among these oak trees with sunlight shining through the the leafy canopy with wood cabins and local cafes serving pie and coffee and stuff and it's still quite a lot like that and we stayed in this airbnb which was basically a single room wooden cabin with a shower and a little kitchen the place was extremely well put together, very tastefully designed. It felt like it had been designed by the owners in a very tasteful way. Everything in there was made of oak wood with a fantastic stove for cooking. And I cooked some food there a couple of evenings and drank some local beer from, from bottles that we'd bought in the local um, market. And we enjoyed hanging around on the deck outside this little place and lying on the sun lounger looking up at the sky through the leaves and branches of the trees. Um, Really nice, relaxing end to the trip. So we only had a couple of days in this peaceful part of town. So we didn't do very much, except for a a trip down to the beach um, where we could uh, get some lunch and and watch people surfing. And uh, so it was a lovely way to to end the, the, the holiday. And it was a pleasure to stay in Topanga. And we didn't want to leave our cabin. We didn't want to come back to reality. We just liked it too much. At night, there were uh, coyotes outside the cabin. Coyotes, these are like these wild dogs. They're slightly smaller than wolves. So there are packs of coyotes. And we could hear them outside the cabin at night. And they make a really strange noise. This kind of whooping, howling and whistling that sounds both ridiculous and quite scary at the same time. Uh, Let me see if I can find any recordings of... Uh, coyotes that I can play to you so you get an idea of what it sounded like okay so here we go I'm going to play it to you now it's pretty weird I have to say I'm not going to play it for very long because it's actually kind of a bit disturbing and if if you're playing this out loud and you've got dogs in the house or something this might freak them out a little bit so I'm just going to play a little bit imagine being in a cabin in the middle of the night and uh, maybe you've even got windows open you might have a door onto the deck open with like an insect screen the only, you know, just between you and the outside world, and there's all these trees and darkness outside, and then you start hearing these noises, and you hear them right outside as well. These were like these coyotes were right outside the the uh, the hut. Right, it's really scary, isn't it? It's really, really scary. And sometimes they sound a bit funny, like weird noises, but then actually it's quite disturbing. And there are some moments you're like, oh God, that's actually really disturbing me. Listen to this. (laughs) They're, they're, um, They're a bit, they sound a bit kind of hysterical. And they also sound like kind of people screaming. Really, really, really weird. And there was one evening where we came back at night, we came back in the car at night, we drove down this long driveway and parked the car outside the, um, the, the place we were staying in. And as, as we drove down towards the cabin, 
there were these coyotes hanging around outside the door of our cabin and they sort of we saw them and they kind of like disappeared into the trees as we pulled up the car these are wild dogs like just a bit smaller than wolves and my wife kind of freaked out a bit she was a bit scared so i had to go out i had to go out of the car open the door of the cabin sort of get the door ready and stuff and then kind of get her into the place quickly because she was a bit scared and um, I must admit that it was pretty off-putting when I heard those coyotes going crazy and when I got out of the car they kind of they they there was a period of quiet and then as I came towards them they started to go hysterical and crazy and they started making all these noises and they would they could smell me probably just standing a few meters away and I heard them all running around in the darkness and making these howling and screaming noises just beyond my vision. Like I couldn't see them but I could sense them just there making this massive noise and I was like trying to get the door open like fiddling with the keys like nervously like I can't get the door open. I kept telling myself that they were more scared of me than I was of them but I didn't really fully convince myself and then I managed to like rush my wife into the house and lock the door oh god and thankfully we both didn't get eaten alive by wild dogs because well that would have been a pity wouldn't it imagine that hearing one day I don't know like the voice of my brother or something on the podcast going hello this is James I'm afraid there won't be any more episodes of Luke's English podcast because Luke got eaten by coyotes Yeah, that would be a dramatic end to the podcast. But no, still here. No worries. Still here in Paris. And the worst thing that I could imagine here is maybe a flood. So no coyotes in in Paris, thank goodness. I don't actually know if they are dangerous to people. I expect some of you listening to this, you might live in places where you get coyotes as well. Are they dangerous? Do they ever attack people? I wonder. They certainly sounded pretty scary. And, you know, if you get a pack of dogs, you know what dogs are like. And coyotes aren't technically dogs, they're coyotes. But uh, dogs can be pretty scary, especially when there's loads of them. So anyway, it was pretty uh, pretty scary stuff, man. Pretty scary stuff. Um, yeah, so all in all, this holiday was amazing. Throughout our trip, people were polite, friendly and helpful uh, and often interesting and funny we saw some cool stuff we had a chance to enjoy each other's company as a couple before the arrival of our child our last holiday together and the trip also took me by surprise a bit i didn't expect to be so moved by the things we saw particularly out in the desert at those canyons and in the navajo nation and it was a bit emotional too um watching my wife's belly get bigger reflecting on things in our sleepless nights It all felt very real at the time, and it was a welcome bit of clarity, even if it all happened far too quickly. And now here I am back in Paris, amongst all of my stuff and all the things that keep me tethered on earth, and it's hard to somehow recreate on a podcast how it really felt to be face-to-face with the hand of nature creating its mysterious art over billions of years, and just feeling like you're kind of just a little blip in the in the mist of time i'm not sure it's possible to in words recreate the experience of discovering such beauty and mystery all through the eyes of people who haven't slept but in any case i hope i've managed to communicate to you some of how it felt and that you've been interested in some of the stories i've told uh, and that you've picked up some more english in the process i certainly hope so 
Um, you might have been to some of the same places that I've been to. So what were your thoughts? And in fact, during the summer holidays, indeed, if you did have a summer holiday, you might have seen some pretty cool things as well. So feel free to write about them in the comments section. Thank you for listening to my holiday diary. And thank you for listening to Luke's English Podcast. It's been nice to talk to you in this series. This is pretty much the end. I think what I'm going to do now, though, is I'm going to try and sing a song for you. I'm going to pick a song by Neil Young, one of those songs that he recorded when he was living in Topanga Canyon, one of the songs that I listened to on one of those days when I was lying on my back in the sunshine, looking up through the trees. I'm going to try and recreate one of those songs for you. Okay? All right. Sailing hardships through broken harbors out on the waves in the night. Still the searcher must ride the dark horse racing alone in his fright. Tell me why. Tell me why. Is it hard to make arrangements with yourself when you're old enough to repay? But young enough to sell Tell me lies later Come and see me I'll be around for a while I am lonely but You can free me All in the way you smile Tell me why Tell me why Is it hard to make arrangements with yourself When you're old enough to repay But young enough to sell There you go. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again on the podcast soon. By the way, the lyrics to that, you can find them on the website. There's a link there. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.